Let's pray one more time just to ask God's blessing in the next uh, hour or so. Uh, Father, we thank you again for uh, this worship and being able to spend it together considering um, your holiness, but then also delighting in your great mercies. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we learn about prayer in the next half an hour or so, that um, we would really be instructed by your spirit and um, really be encouraged, uh, but also exhorted. Um, as we look at our prayer lives and, and we, we want, Lord, uh, to be prayerful people. Um, but in order to do that, we need to know what prayer is and we need to know who you are and who we are. And so teach us these things, uh, Lord. And pray that at the end of this time, we would walk away refreshed because uh, your word was preached and Christ was honored and therefore our hearts were satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, the Lord's Prayer is, is such a familiar prayer uh, that it's so easy to pray it, isn't it, uh, mindlessly and on autopilot. Uh, ironically, right before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has just taught us to not pray like the Gentiles, not pray mindlessly, thoughtlessly. But so many times when we get to the Lord's Prayer, uh, our minds can be thinking about any number of things, but our mouth can be uttering and reciting exactly what's written here in the Scriptures. And when we do this, when we pray the Lord's Prayer on autopilot, we pray a little mindlessly, uh, it really loses his significance and his substance. All that Jesus wanted us to learn and benefit from from the Lord's Prayer just uh, kind of uh, loses its, its power, its impact in our lives. And like many things, uh, when something becomes too familiar, uh, it becomes casual, and then when it becomes casual, it becomes thoughtless. Uh, just like, can you remember the first time driving here to this church in this new location? At least for me, everything was new. I noticed every detail. I was looking around and noticed so many different things about the neighborhood. Uh, but now for some of us, it's been uh, six weeks or so. For those who were helping uh, with the renovations, it's been two, three, four months. And so now when you drive here, do you really still pay attention to all of the things surrounding us? And maybe if you're at a red light, you'll kind of look around and you'll notice some things. But other than that, we stop paying attention. I remember the first time driving to this neighborhood and, and, and passing by Memorial Park and noticing all of, all of the cannons and, and thinking, wow, that, that's so unique. But, you know, to be honest, uh, the, for the past four months or so, I haven't seen the cannons, not because they're not there, but because I so mindlessly drive by it. And the same thing can happen when we approach the Lord's Prayer, that, that we're just praying it because we're so used to, we've heard it so many times, we've memorized it, that we lose its significance. We lose the substance Jesus is teaching in it. And this is why we need to ask the Holy Spirit for fresh eyes again to see what, our, what we're so prone to glaze over. And we need to ask for fresh ears to hear this prayer in a new way that it really captures our heart uh, again. And uh, so this morning, although we read the whole Lord's Prayer, verses 9 to 13, I'm actually only going to focus on verse 9 and focus on the two themes of adoption and adoration as they relate to prayer. Um, now, I've been here at Cornerstone for about almost two and a half years, and you may have noticed, I'm not sure if you have, but you may have noticed I like to slow down when it comes to preaching passages. And so uh, in two and a half years here, I've preached uh, on multiple occasions. I've preached the same passage twice back to back just because there's so much in it and I want to squeeze as much as I can. And so uh, to be honest, when it came to this 
passage in, in Matthew 6, uh, I think I had announced that you know, I wanted to preach 10 sermons or so on it. And actually on verse 9, I wanted to do two sermons on verse 9 alone. I wanted to do one sermon today on verse 9a on adoption. And next week I wanted to do one on 9b, adoration. But um, luckily for you, I remembered this preaching course I took in seminary. And the professor, uh, a wise man, he in great love actually for all of our future congregations, he said to us, he said, only Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones could pull off preaching on half a verse or less. You're not them. Don't do it. So with that sobering reminder, I'll try by God's grace and all my might to preach this one verse in just one sermon. I'll try my best because I love you all. So here's the gospel truth. Here's the summary of our sermon today. Those adopted in Christ adore their heavenly father in prayer. Those adopted in Christ adore their heavenly father in prayer. And simply we'll look at this sermon and this passage under two headings, adoption and then adoration. So let's start with this first point, adoption. Uh, the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples is not what to request God or how we should be requesting it, but he actually teaches us who we are addressing in prayer. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Then that's significant, right off the bat, so as nobody to be confused about prayer, Jesus establishes that prayer is relational. That there is a person on the receiving end of your prayer. There is a living and listening ear who listens to what you pray. Prayer isn't simply uh, bringing together your words or your thoughts and sending them into the universe. Because if you, if you do, it's just dust in the wind. You know, Christian prayer is not impersonal, it's personal. And that's, that makes Christian prayer very unique. Because we pray to a person. We're not praying to an idea, or a force, or a power. You know, sometimes when I hear people talk about prayer these days, uh, it's kind of quite alarming. I hear a lot of people speak about prayer as um, sending good vibes into the universe. Sending good vibes, you know, I don't know what that means, to be honest. But it kind of makes me think, you know, maybe I'm just a cynic, but, but what does that actually mean? That means your prayers are being uttered, but if you're just sending them out into the universe, into this impersonal, vast, great abyss of the unknown, then, then what are your prayers actually affecting? Now, I've heard another one. I don't mean to offend anybody here who's used these kind of expressions, but I do mean it in, in gentle correction. You know, I've also heard people say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sending prayers your way. And when I hear that, if someone tells me they're sending prayers my way, I can't help but think to myself, you know, I'm the one who needs help. Don't send your prayers to me. Send them to somebody else. Send them to someone who can actually help me. I don't need to be receiving your prayers. Now, I don't know how you think about prayer, how you envision prayer. What is prayer to you? You know, for some, it, it's, it's sort of like a distress beacon that you're signaling, uh, signaling to, to the universe, hoping that some kind of intervention would happen in your life. Some of us think of prayer that way. Others think of, us, uh, think of prayer more as this inward, internal, uh, self-soothing technique. Uh, you may have more of a Buddhist view of prayer where you're emptying yourself, uh, you're meditating, um, you're finding balance in your life. But the way Jesus talks about prayer is unlike any of this. Jesus comes along and when he teaches you, pray our Father 
in heaven, he's teaching us that prayer is a relational act with a person that you can call by name. And by starting with the person, Jesus actually changes the entire purpose of prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray our Father in heaven, he's teaching us that prayer was never meant to be ultimately request-driven. Prayer was always meant to be intimately relationship-driven. Let me say that again. Prayer is not meant ultimately to be request-driven. It's meant intimately to be relationship-driven. Prayer is never meant to get something from God. Prayer is meant to get time with God. And so from the beginning, Jesus establishes this is the purpose of prayer. It's conversational, it's relational, it's personal. But also notice this, when Jesus teaches to pray, he doesn't teach us to pray God, or the Lord, or the Almighty, or Yahweh, or the Most High. Now all of those are legitimate and appropriate biblical ways of addressing God. We see them all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New. But what Jesus does here is he instructs. Now listen, he doesn't suggest, he doesn't recommend, he doesn't encourage. Jesus commands us to pray, calling God our Father. Now you need to know how radical this was to the ancient audience. You know, there was one scholar who, who did this study where he searched the entire Old Testament and then he looked at these other rabbinic sources from the ancient times and he was looking to see if there was ever an example of an individual Jew praying to God and calling God Father. And this scholar who embarked on this study couldn't find a single example until the 10th century, a thousand years later, of an individual Jew referring to God as a father. Now, he did find examples of people calling God or referring to God as the father, but never directly and personally addressing God as father. Now, if you think about that, that that's really radical. To be told that you now have this direct access to the Almighty in such a way that you can intimately call him Father. Now, in order to, to help you get a sense of this, this is a bit of an extreme example, but for the sake of the point, you know, imagine, I, I want you to imagine the way that the readers heard Jesus saying, you can call God now Father. Imagine if today, in today's sermon, I, I stood up and, and I said, this is how we should pray, congregation, from now on. Our mother in heaven. And if I taught you that, what would your reaction be if I exhorted you, pray now to your mother? And if I were to say that, how, to how many does that strike you as simply different? Hmm, that's different. Or how many of you is that disorienting? What is he talking about? For how many of you is that simply odd? And for how many of you is that actually offensive? Now, calling God Father probably wasn't as drastic as me trying to teach you to call God Mother, but, but for the sake of the point, I, I want you to understand the sort of disorienting nature, the offensive nature of this. This would be revolutionary. This would be paradigm shifting. You could talk about God as the Father, but no one had ever spoken to God as their Father. It's something that we take for granted, isn't it? And so when we pray, we just mutter, Father, and we go on with our prayer. But this week, just as an encouragement, before you mutter the words Father and get to whatever it is you want to pray about, stop and think about what you just got to call God. 
It's like for the first time that when, when, when you ever uh, are able to refer to your spouse after the wedding day and you say, my husband or my wife, and you think, oh, that sounds so weird. <laughs> but it helps you remember the privilege that you have. It reminds you that you have this new relationship. I met a guy this past weekend who just got engaged and he kept saying, um, my girl, and oh, my fiance. And it's reminding himself, again, this new relationship. She's no longer just his girl, his girlfriend, but his fiance, and soon, next year, it's going to be my wife. We have this blessed privilege to call God Father. It's not to be taken lightly, but here's a question. Does everybody have that privilege? Can anybody who prays regardless of your faith call God Father? And the answer is no. The privilege of calling God our Father is only a right given and extended to those who have been adopted into God's family. And I say this so that there is no confusion. Not everybody can call God a Father because God is not a Father to everybody. And this also means, in turn, not everybody is God's child. Now, I understand that sounds offensive to some, that sounds so exclusive. Why would you say some, such a thing? But, but let me ask you, if you're wondering that, why should it be? Why should it be the right for anybody to call God Father, regardless of your faith? Because if the basis of prayer is relational, then only those with a relationship to God can call him Father. You know, so, for example, I won't, after service, call any of you mom or dad, and in turn, you won't call somebody else's parents mom or dad because you know you don't have a relationship with them. And in the same way that it is uh, socially accepted that you don't call people who aren't your mother and father mother and father, why would anybody who is not adopted into God's family have the right to call him father? The Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. Not everybody is God's child. God is not everybody's father. This is a special privilege called adoption. It's a benefit you receive from Jesus Christ, one that he gives you at a great cost to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. He brings you into God's family. Now, now here's the thing. I've had conversations with Christians, both young and old, who say, yeah, I believe that everybody is God's child, and I'll ask, even if they don't believe in them, yeah, we're all God's children. But when I press them, and I, and I think this may be what's going on in your heart too, is this, it becomes really clear that what they mean when they say everyone is God's child is, is their thinking is, well, God created everybody, and therefore everybody is God's child. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that because God created everybody, everybody is his creation. He is their creator, this relationship you can't uh, escape, but not everybody is his child. That, that relationship, that privilege, that right is only enjoyed through faith in Jesus. You know, John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 says this. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who did receive Jesus, who believed in Jesus, to them God gives the right. And the good news for those of you who may not know God as your father today is I'm not up here saying um, 
You can't have access to this. I'm actually here saying you can have access to this today. You can, if you came in here not knowing God as Father, you can leave this place today knowing God as your Father if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart Jesus is Lord and Savior who died to wash away your sins and bring you into God's family. That is a great hope to have. And for those of you who are believers and you are a Christian, you need to remember again, this is a great benefit to call him Father. We need to make much use of it when we pray. Because when you call God Father, it not only reminds you of who God is to you, it reminds you of who you are to God. You are his child. When you pray to God, you don't pray as a slave is talking to his master. You're not praying as an orphan is talking to a stranger. You're talking as a child talking to his or her father. And because he is your father, he bends down his ear to hear you. Those with young children, you stand tall. Your child is down here. When they ask you something, you don't say, find a chair and climb your way to me and talk to me at ear level. What do you do? You bend down, you stoop low, and that's what our Father is doing. And that's really important, especially in those moments when we're praying in such discouragement and defeat and we're praying in doubt and we're praying in disbelief and our prayers are barely coming out. God is not sitting in heaven going, well, pray a little louder. But he is stooping low to hear even the faintest whispers that our hearts mutter, listening even to our groans. Friends, do you make much of your adoption in prayer? And I really think, depending on this, how much you make of your adoption, how much you understand God to be your father, is a great indicator and test of Christian maturity. You know, when I counsel Christians, and especially uh, you know, those who are, who are struggling and, and they're wondering you know, whether they're actually growing or not, I, I really think, because I got this from J.I. Packer, but he basically says, how do you test the Christian's spiritual maturity? And a lot of us think it's, oh, depending on how much somebody knows or how much somebody does. Right? Those are often the two indicators. He serves the church a lot, he must be you know, mature. Or he knows a lot, he must be mature. No, that's not it at all. How much you understand that you are God's child and he is your father, that is the test of maturity. That reveals your true understanding of the gospel. You know, I, I, I recently uh, went back and, and I watched uh, the Matrix films, if, if you remember that. It came out in the 90s. And uh, there's so many good gospel themes in that um, in that movie, Keanu Reeves plays um, uh, a character named uh, Neo, who is the one, almost like a savior figure. And uh, the one, he, he goes to meet uh, somebody named the Oracle, and uh, before he does, is able to meet her, he needs to, he's confronted with her bodyguard, his name's Seraph, and, and Seraph wants to fight him before he lets, him, uh, lets the one go see the Oracle. And, and they spar, it's this great scene, they're on top of these dining room tables, and it's this great sparring scene, and he proves himself to be uh, the Seraph's equal match, because he's not losing, and so Seraph stops the fight. And as if to explain why they just fought, he says, the oracle has many enemies, I had to be sure. And Neo responds, you could have just asked. <laughs> and that's when Seraph responds with this great line. He says, you do not truly know someone until you fight them. And I find this line compelling because I think you can apply it to Christianity as well. How do you know that somebody knows God? How can you be sure somebody truly knows God? And on the one hand, you could just ask me. 
But anybody can say the right answer. Anyone can say the right things. How would you really know? And if I could borrow the words of Seraph, I'd respond, you do not truly know someone's faith in God until you listen to them pray. You do not know how much they know God until you listen to them pray. Because when you listen to them, how they address God, the intimacy shared in that prayer, the love experienced, the dependency expressed, all of these things really show what you believe. Not just in your head, but in your heart. And so J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes something so illuminating. He writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Now, before we end this point, I, I want to comment on the second pair of words that, that follows. And for the sake of time, I'll just do it quickly. But uh, Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. And that in heaven deserves its own sermon uh, by itself. But, but essentially, Jesus is reminding us that although God draws near to us with fatherly care, he also draws near to us with heavenly power. We're reminded that our Father is not only personal, but he is powerful. That he's not only imminent, but he's also transcendent. He's not only Abba, but he is the Almighty. So you don't just pray to a God who cares. You pray to a God who can. You don't just pray to a God who cares, but to a God who can. And that makes all of the difference. So let me close this point with a specific application. This, this week, as you pray, I challenge you to think very carefully, pay very close attention to how you are addressing God. Pay very close attention to how you naturally, what you naturally tend toward calling him. And it's fine, of course, to call God, God, the Lord, the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All those are great. You may sound very impressive, but I want you to think and slow down and, and, and see in your heart of hearts, do you ever call him Father? Do you make much of that? If so, in fact, this week, when you pray, maybe if I can challenge you just for this week, when you pray, only call him Father. Begin there. Begin with the relationship. Begin with the intimacy. And, and keep an eye out for this, because this is where the human heart gets a little confused. When you've sinned, pay attention to this. When you've sinned, do you find it harder to call him Father and easier to call him God or Lord? When you've sinned and you're repenting and you just feel so guilty and ashamed of what you've done and you're coming before him, is it easier to call him God and Lord because it keeps a distance? And is it harder to call him Father because you feel like you have no right before him? And on the other hand, when you feel pretty good about yourself, when you've done a lot of good that week, you've kept away from some egregious sins, you've lived well that day, your Christian performance is through the roof, do you find it easier to call him Father? Because if you notice this discrepancy, that means you're relying on your righteousness and your good deeds and your performance to establish your relationship to God. You're not resting in Christ. So that's my challenge to you this week. With boldness and confidence in the gospel, regardless of how you feel, call him Father when you pray. 
Call him Father when you come in repentance. Call him Father when you come celebrating and praising his name. Call him Father on your best days. Call him Father on your worst days. Call him Father when you feel like Mother of the Year. Call him Father when you feel like the worst parent in the world. Call him Father frequently. Call him Father freely. Make much of the adoption you have in Jesus Christ. And I'll close this point with Martin Luther's quote when he wrote, although you could rightly and properly be a severe judge over us sinners, now through your mercy implant on our hearts comforting trust in your fatherly love and let us experience the sweet and pleasant savor of a childlike certainty that we may joyfully call you Father, knowing and loving you and calling on you in every trouble. Now, I want to say so much more on this, but I will be faithful to that promise and go to the second point, our adoration. Second point, adoration. Jesus continues, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I mentioned last week that the organization of this prayer is three and three, three petitions on God, three on ourselves. And we're reminded to start with God, right? We pray your name, your kingdom, your will. And we're praying here, hallowed be your name, but, but what does it mean to hallow God's name? Now, hallow means to, to be sanctified, to keep sanctified or sacred, set apart, ultimate. And so basically, to ask God's name to be hallowed is, is, is a prayer of adoration. You're asking God and his name to be worshipped and adored and praised and glorified and cherished above every other name, to be set apart above every other name. But here's the thing. If you understand your adoption, your prayer will begin with adoration. If you understand you are adopted in Christ, then your prayer will begin with adoration. Because if you know who you are to God and who God is to you, you know all he's done for you. There's really no other place to start. If you call him father and remind you, it floods you, now through Christ you have a new relationship with him. You have a family name. You have an inheritance in heaven. You have an eternal home. You have a spiritual family. By simply calling God our father, you're reminded of everything you have in Jesus. You won't want to start anywhere else than in adoration. Because why? The father gave you everything by losing everything so that he could be father to the fatherless. How did you become God's child? How is he your father? Because he sacrificed Jesus, his one and only son, to die in your place, to give you a relationship you didn't deserve, but one that you desperately need. You know, Edmund Clowney, he was the president of, uh, first president of Westminster Seminary in Glenside, and he used to say this. He says, the Bible, that famous verse, John 3.16, that you all know, he says, the Bible does not say that God so loved his son that he gave him the world, but that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. It should be the first way, shouldn't it? God so loved his son that he gave him the world, but rather it says God so loved the world that he gave us his son. You understand, if you understand your adoption, you will explode in adoration. So my question is, are you rushing to prayer to ask God for something you want, or are you rushing to prayer to adore God for everything he's given? Phil Riken, um, he's now the president at uh, Wheaton's uh, College, he tells this wonderful story uh, about this wise and benevolent king. And this king was honored, loved by all of his subjects. And, and so uh, one day a week, he would open his throne room to the public. And um, 
during that time, all of these people would come and he would hear grievances and he would listen to petitions. And, you know, basically he was a good king. who was making himself available to meet the people's needs. And there was this one man who faithfully came week after week to see the king. And yet he never stood in line to make a request. And this bothered the king. He got kind of suspicious. Why is that man always coming in, sitting in the back throughout the duration of the whole day, but he never makes a complaint against me. He never makes a request to me. And so one day the king called the man forward and asked him, why do you come if you don't ask for any help? And this is what the man said. He said, your majesty, when I was a young man, I committed a crime and I was sentenced to death. Yet as I was dragged through the streets to the gallows, I saw you riding on your horse and I cried out for mercy. Since I was such a young man, you granted me a royal pardon and commanded me to be released. That is why I come to stand in your presence every week. I do not come to ask for anything. What more could I ask for? You have already given me my life and my freedom. I come only to pay you homage, to honor you as your devoted servant. You know, friends, God, our King, has done much more than simply pardon us and shown us mercy. But he has made you an orphan his own. He has made you a felon into his family. He has made you a criminal into his child. So when you come before God in prayer as his child, do you come full of your complaints and requests, or do you come simply to gaze in humble adoration and hallow his name? And think about this with me. If, if God granted you everything you wanted, if God, God certainly knows, it says here in Matthew 6, that God knows everything that we need, but if God knew everything you needed and he gave it to you in abundance, so you never had to ask, would there be anything left for you to pray? Would you still come to God daily in prayer? Would you come with awe? Would you come with adoration? In fact, we don't even have to make it hypothetical. In your life, in those seasons when there are no fires, when there's no major pressing concerns in your life, in those moments, what does your prayer life look like? Is your prayer life stagnant and absent? Because I have nothing to pray for, or is it still frequent and full? Because it's full of adoration. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson, he had this helpful insight when, when he basically said, you know, this prayer for adoration is the only petition that will continue into heaven. He says, when some of the other petitions shall be useless and out of date, as we shall not need to pray in heaven, give us our daily bread because there shall be no sin, nor lead us into temptation because the old serpent is not there to tempt. Yet the hallow of God's name will be of great use and request in heaven. We shall be ever singing hallelujahs, which is of nothing else but the hallowing of God's name. You know, the health and the vitality of your relationship with God is really tested. Listen, the health and the vitality of your Christian life is really tested, not in the moments that life is hard, but in the moments life is good. Because will you still come to God? Will you still praise his name? Will you still be filled with awe and adoration? And if you see that is the case, then it's revealing, it's exposing. Our prayers are only request-driven, not relationship-driven. Uh, but I understand this. Uh, it's a sad reality, but I think it's a true reality, which is, for some of us, if you're not asking God for anything, you're thinking, oh, what do I talk to him about? 
What do I pray for? Some of us, if, if, we, if, if I say, don't make any requests of God, don't, don't ask him for anything, then you're thinking, well, then what do I talk to God about? And if that's the case, then that's really exposing something in us. You know, like, have you ever had to call a customer, a customer service representative for some, you know, troubleshooting issues, some troubleshooting problem, and you call, and this stranger picks up from who knows where in the world, and you tell them your issues, you tell them the problems, you know, you ask for help, and they solve it. And then what do you do? Afterwards, they finish, and they say, you know, I hope I, you know, was able to help you. Is there anything else I can help you with today? How many of you go, actually, yes, there is. How was your weekend, Steve? <laughs> like, how awkward would it be to linger on in the customer uh, service uh, questioning because why you called, that reason is now fulfilled. You don't continue the conversation because you have no relationship. Because the only relationship you have with this person on the phone is service-oriented, and once they've met your need, there's nothing else to talk about. If you're finding yourself in a position where if I'm not asking God for anything and there's nothing else for me to talk about, that means all God is to you is a customer service help. So then if I'm not asking God for things, what else can I be talking to God about? And obviously Jesus here is teaching us adoration, but along with adoration, I think uh, is something very important and that's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is such an important part of prayer. Jesus doesn't devote a separate line to this, right? Jesus doesn't say, when you pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name and thank you for everything. And you might be thinking, well, if, that's, if it's so important, why isn't it here? Well, first, Thanksgiving is all over the rest of the Bible and the need to pray for it. But I actually believe hallowed be your name includes Thanksgiving. Because John Calvin actually, he basically said this. He said, a heart of ingratitude, a heart of indifference and in giving thanks to God is actually a way that we fail to honor his name. It's a way we fail to hallow his name. Because, listen, by refusing to be thankful for the things that God has given in your life, you're not hallowing God's name, you're hallowing God's name. When you refuse to give thanksgiving, you're hollowing out, you're taking out, you're emptying out reasons to adore God. You're emptying reasons why God and God alone deserves to be praised, glorified. You know, I heard Tim Keller like, and he basically said, uh, our ingratitude, he, he didn't call it this, this is kind of my take on it, but uh, that's my way of getting credit for something he did. He basically says, um, refusing to be thankful in prayer, ingratitude, is cosmic plagiarism. Right. Plagiarism, of course, is taking credit for another person's idea by claiming uh, you know, that you came up with it or passing it off like it was yours. Right? Essentially, plagiarism is a refusal to give thanks and credit where it's due, and as a result, it's theft. When we refuse to give God thanks, we're not hallowing his name, we're hallowing it. We're robbing God of the credit that is due to him. We're refusing to acknowledge that what we have, we have only because of him. And by refusing to give thanks, you're basically stating to yourself and to the world that everything I have, all the blessings I have, I have because I deserve it. I worked for it. And this is plagiarism at the cosmic level. And the only solution to this is to hallow God's name by giving him thanks, properly acknowledging his name. This, what I have, comes from you, O Father, the giver of all good gifts. So, how do you pray in a way 
where you only adore God's name? How do you make it relationship-driven? You pray to the Father and you thank Him. You adore Him for every good gift He has given you. How much of your prayers are full of adoration and thanksgiving? How much of it is, is concerned with hallowing His beautiful name? And, I, and I'll end here. Let me end with this exhortation. This week, as you pray, begin with adoration and let your adoration spill into thanksgiving. And spend time on this, work on this, because I think uh, we try to do it and then we move on too quickly. We give up too easily, but, but I'm actually going to challenge you to say, uh, set apart a time when you pray and you only adore and thank Him. Right, leave your requests at the door, because they'll still be there afterwards. But try taking five minutes of prayer and simply focusing on adoration and thanksgiving. And if you're wondering, well, what's the purpose of that? Well, if anything, this is good training for heaven. Well, you will not be focused on yourself, but you will be living in adoration and thanksgiving. Friends, this week, make much of your adoption in Christ and then let it fuel your adoration to our good and great Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, as you have just taught us to pray, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you... Teach us this week by your spirit uh, in reminding us, God, of who we are in light of what you've done for us. We are no longer slaves, and you are not just a master. We are no longer orphans, and you are not just a stranger. We are no longer criminals, and you are just a judge. We are sons and daughters, and you are our Father. Help us to make much use of this adoption and help it lead and form and shape our prayers of adoration. And we pray, God, that as we do so, we would be constantly reminded again and again of your great love for us through Jesus Christ. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.